Happy Monday, and welcome to the Religious Studies Project. I'm Dave McConaughey, and with me today is... Brianne Fallon. How are you today, Dave? I am lovely. Classes have started back up again. I am teaching fully remotely, fully synchronously online. It's all Zoom all the time over here. How are things at the museum in Australia? We're going okay. We're open three days a week. Still no live lectures, but same as you, lecturing online, getting very used to Zoom, although I must say I do think that my spectacle prescription has gone up from the amount of screen time we've been having, but no complaints here. Speaking of uh, no complaints, we have a wonderful episode for you this week um, with Kathleen Openshaw, who is a scholar located in Australia. I met her on the conference circuit a couple of years ago, and we really hit it off, so I'm excited to have her on the project today. Maxine Connolly-Panagopoulos interviewed Kathleen on Navigating Stasis and Mobility, The Journey of Anointing Oil. Take it away. All right. I'm Maxine Connolly Panagopoulos, and it's a Thursday evening here in Glasgow and a chilly Friday morning in Sydney. And I'm speaking to Dr. Kathleen Oppenshaw today about her work within the Universal Church of the Kingdom of God in Australia. Kathleen, welcome to the Religious Studies Project. Hey, Maxine. Um, thank you so much for having me. Thank you to the Religious Studies Project um, for having me as well. I'm an avid listener of the podcast, so it's kind of great to be included in the catalogue of um, scholars that are part of um, of this project. Um, if you don't mind, I'd like to start by just acknowledging um, that I'm speaking from the unceded land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, um, and I just want to pay my respects to their elders past, present, and emerging, and to set and um to celebrate the diversity of Aboriginal people and their ongoing culture and connection to the lands and the waters um, of Australia. And I also just want to pay my respects to any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people um, who are listening to this podcast. Amazing. Thank you for that. Um, so your work focuses mostly on African migrant experiences um, in the global north. And in this episode, I wanted to focus on your 2019 article, which I'll, of course, link in the description. Um, but you investigate the increasing spiritual capital around a single vial of oil as it makes an epic journey. And I must say, I'm really, really excited for this episode um, because my own research touched on similar concepts. But mostly I'm excited because even though you're in Australia and I'm in Glasgow, we're both from Johannesburg, South Africa, <laughs> and we've spent about half an hour before we've started recording just reminiscing, and all I want is rusks from South Africa, so <laughs> I'm super Wolf jealous. And Yeah, exactly. Um, but it is such a great coincidence. Um, but anyways, um, I thought we'd sort of start just kind of by outlining your research within the Universal Church. Um, really before moving on to some of the more theoretical contributions that mm -hmm. you make. Um, so just for context, can you tell me a little bit about um, the Universal Church of the Kingdom of God and maybe outline their origins and, and how they exist within Australia? Yeah, absolutely. So um, uh, as many scholars of Pentecostalism would know, the Universal Church of the Kingdom of God 
or so I don't have to say the whole name, <laughs> um, the UCKD or the Universal Church, um, is basically a Brazilian transnational megachurch. Um, and it's, it's sort of considered to be part of the third wave of um, Brazilian Pentecostalism. So um, Paul Freston writes a lot about this. And um, basically this wave is associated with prosperity gospel, um, miraculous healing, um, and that kind of uh, very sort of um, established spiritual battlefield, um, which kind of plays out uh, a lot, um, or certainly did um, in my field work. Um, but basically, the Universal Church had really humble beginnings in a bandstand in uh, Rio de Janeiro. And um, Idea Macedo, who was one of the founders, literally would turn up at this bandstand in a very poor area uh, with a microphone and a Bible, and he would preach the word. Um, and basically, the uh, the crowd sort of outgrew the bandstand. Um, okay. So he moved into his first church, um, which was a funeral parlor. Um, and the uh, the first service was held in July in 1977. And basically, the uh, the church has basically just mushroomed since then. Yeah. So it kind of grew and it sort of was filling sort of old cinemas. And then um, it started um, having sort of purpose-built branches. And then, of course, these huge cathedrals that um, they started building, um, in particular, um, for those of you who might be interested, um, they've just recently, in 2014, so perhaps not that recently, um, opened this huge temple uh, in Sao Paulo called the Temple of Solomon. Um, and basically it's a, um, a replica of the biblical Temple of Solomon. Um, but basically um, the church in the last sort of four decades has grown exponentially um, both in Brazil but also um, has exceeded the metropolis of Brazil. Um, so there's about 7,000 temples in about 128 countries. Wow. Um, it's it's pretty conservative um, and um, has really kind of um, played quite a prominent role in uh, mobilizing sort of the evangelical vote in Brazil. So, for instance, the current mayor of Rio de Janeiro um is a bishop <laughs> in the church. Mm. Um, and then um, the the leader, Adé Macedo, who I mentioned earlier, or the yeah. founder, and who is now kind of like the head bishop, um, also played quite an important role in supporting Jair Bolsonaro, who is, as, as you know, uh, Brazil's uh, newly, well, probably not newly elected now. He was elected in 2018, but um, Brazil's president. So it's... Um, it's certainly a huge church. What's really interesting is that the Australian branch um, only kind of started in 2006. So it was a pretty late, um, a late sort of church planting by the church. Um, and it, it, it eventually became the Australian headquarters. So um, the Australian headquarters of the Universal Church is about 30 kilometers outside of Sydney CBD in um, in Liverpool. Um, and Liverpool is one of Australia's oldest uh, urban hubs. Um, it's also one of the most kind of culturally, religiously, and linguistically diverse places in Australia. Um, 
And it was established in a really cramped little rented room above a row of shops and fast food joints. Um, and then, as is probably kind of quite common in a lot of branches, it sort of outgrew that. Um, and now it's between a Vietnamese bakery and a GP's office um, just up the road. Um, and it basically it's moved into like an old insurance company. Um, so the building is very sort of corporate and you only really know that it's a church um, because there's a very well-dressed pastor that is often out there handing out flyers. And then there's a little white dove and a red heart on the glass. Um, and that's really common. You see that around in the universal churches. That's kind of how you know that it's a universal church. Um, in the, and yeah, sorry. Yeah. No, no, no. Um, you had spoken a little bit about how um, the Universal Church in the Australian context um, was, you know, why do you believe that it's so attractive to migrants from the global south? So the thing with the Australian church in particular is that it basically, it seems to attract um, people from the global south um, so that's a very uh, strong cohort of Indo-Fijians, South Sudanese, um, there's a lot of Samoans, um, and then other countries like Uruguay, Ghana, South Africa. Um, and really, the thing with the Universal Church is that globally, um, outside of Brazil, the Universal's congregation tends to be non-Brazilian, um, socially disenfranchised, um, kind of poorer and darker skinned um, and either sort of rural or international migrants. Um, there's a couple of ethnographies though. Um, so for instance, when Bake's um, ethnography about the Universal Church in South Africa, um, where it would be more local um, kind of congregants, but they're still experiencing um, high levels of disenfran disenfranchisement. Um, so I kind of have three ideas as to as to why it might be attractive in an Australian context to people from the global south and basically the universal church's congregation is a church of others um, and again um, Ilana van Veik writes the, the title of her book um, is a church of strangers and basically what she's saying is that you don't get the usual sort of um, sort of Christian fellowship and warmth that you would expect from a church, right? Um, and I didn't find that in the Australian um, congregation. In fact, I found that there is definitely that sort of like horizontal warmth um, and fellowship that takes place. But what the congregation is, is rather a church of others. Um, so they are societal others. They are those who are marginalised um, in Australian society. So what makes the Universal Church attractive? Well, I kind of think that firstly, in an Australia where there is a pretty strong white nationalist voice and these kind of like anti-migrant sentiments, the Universal Church places those who are geographically and socially marginalized um, from Australia's sort of centers of power um, it sort of places them in a spiritual center of power, if that makes any sense. So yeah, where yeah. their access to power is not dependent on their migrant status or, or mm -hmm. their skin color. 
Um, one of the other things that I think really draws um, migrants from the global south to the church is that the universal's cosmovision um, is easily translatable. So that kind of embracing of an enchanted worldview, um, there is that sort of broad continuity with um, congregants' own kind of cultural religious framework. Um, so the UCKG kind of creates a sort of magical space, um, but it's embedded under the rubric of Christianity. So that way um, migrants are able to kind of um, be involved in this enchanted um, worldview, but of course it's under this, like it's under the umbrella of Christianity. Yeah, that's and, yeah. that's so interesting. And I, in my research, I, I sort of found a similar thing where um, my participants would celebrate Yelda night yeah. in the church, you know, and, and that's something that in a Glasgow sort of Christian <laughs> context would not fly. Right. Um, and it does seem to be the space where, you know, the, the sort of more magical cultural elements are allowed. So that, that's really, really interesting. And what was the third thing? Um, so the third thing, just to speak to that point, actually, I want you to say with these marginalized um, people, right, that kind of magical, um, and I use magical in a way um, that is, you know, I'm not foo-pooing it in any way. These are really yeah. powerful things that are that are taking place in this church, right? Um, but what they're doing is they're using that kind of an, um, embracing of an enchanted worldview um, to really address the challenges and hardships that they're facing, um, particularly the difficulties that they're experiencing in Australia as well. So, um, for instance, a couple of the South Africans um, in the church would be really concerned about, like, Muti. Um, yeah. Yeah, so, Maxine, you know what Muti is. It's basically mm -hmm. kind of like um, Sangomas or, like, um, witch doctors um, would have um, – this kind of you know, moody medicine, or, medicine, yeah, yeah um, mm -hmm. that you know can be used for good or for bad, but often in a in a Christian context would be used for bad, and they sort of like counteract the effects of that moody or that curse by using sort of like holy water, for instance. Mm -hmm. um, the third thing is, I think that the church really provides, and Linda Funderkamp talks about this in, in her work. She's done a lot of work with Brazilian Pentecostalism in Mozambique. Incredible work, um, well worth a read. Um, yeah. She refers, refers to um, pioneering techniques. Um, so basically, the universal church teaches these techniques to overcome the life obstacles. So again, it kind of speaks to this um, engagement with um this sort of spiritual battle that's going on, but this sort of parallel as well with um, these life battles that are taking place. Um, so when you are living quite a precarious life, as as many of um, the congregants in the church do, not all of them, um, yeah. but but many of them, um, and many of them experience marginalization, what the church teaches is these kinds of tools of faith that um, they kind of implement that will help them change their physical lives, right? So there's a lot of emphasis on what, I mean, it's quite neoliberal in its approach. Um, what can you do 
um, to change your circumstances. Here are some of the tools. And of course, a lot of these tools are, are spiritual tools, right? They are tools yeah. because when you have done everything that you can to change your life, um, you know, you've stood in the queues, um, you've filled out all the paperwork, you've gone to the lawyers, you've applied for a million jobs. Um, there has to be something else going on, right? So the church doesn't necessarily take into account kind of um, the structural violence that a lot of the, the migrants um, in this church or children of migrants in this church are experiencing. But what it does is it talks about kind of like these sort of spiritual blockages that you can um, remove or circumnavigate by using um, these sort of pioneering techniques, these, uh, these tools of faith. So, yeah, that's why I think... A lot of people turn up because the church is not—it's um, not warm and fuzzy, right? Like you're That's fighting. Interesting. Yeah, you're fighting a, a cosmic battle. So, hmm. and it, it expects a lot from you. You know, you're sacrificing sometimes quite huge amounts of um, money, um, your time. It's it's like I said, it's not warm and fuzzy because you're you're fighting a battle. So it's you know. It's it's really, a church really where you really go and you sort your life out. Yeah, this sort of leads quite nicely into my next question. You know, coming back to those sort of tools of faith, as as mm-hmm. you were talking about, and so the practical, but also um, the more material tools. So you, um, you know, your article speaks a lot, obviously, about anointing oil and mm-hmm. how that seems to be quite central to the church. And one of the great anecdotes that I loved in your article was when you spoke about the woman in the congregation suggesting that, you know, you put some anointing oil in your partner's food to get him to propose to you. Um, I really quite enjoyed that. Yeah, because he he was taking his time. (laughs) And every time I turned up at church, they're like, has he popped the question yet? Because, of course, it's quite a conservative church. Like, you're living with this Mm -hmm. man. You know, I think somebody said, um, why would he buy the cow if he was getting the milk for free? (laughs) Yeah. I, I mean, I don't know if you want to cut that bit out, but um, <laughs> um, so I was getting the distinct impression that it was time that uh, my husband hurried up and, and married me, made a good woman of me. Well, it seemed to work. So, well, you yeah, know, you, you, yeah, we did get married. And he, and he did propose about six months after. I'm not telling you whether I put the anointing oil in his food or not. That's between <laughs> me and God. <laughs> Um, but you know this again. Even that anecdote just seems to speak to so to, to how widely the oil was used. Mm. And so, what is the significance of this oil within that congregation? So, and this is this kind of speaks to um, the universal churches. Really, kind of this this embedding of its practices and in, in materiality. Um, Anointing oil is a really precious thing in the universal church. So often um, they would have uh, these big events where um, the oil is used, is either kind of consecrated in various ways or um, it's come from Israel, as in, as in the case of um, Halima's story, um, the article that you were mentioning. So it's a really powerful thing. And um, it has biblical significance both in the Old and the New Testament, but essentially anointing oil is this kind of spiritual panacea. Um, so it's able to 
cast out demons, um, heal the sick. Uh, the sick. Um, if you rub it on your wallet, it can help with your financial state of affairs. Um, if you perhaps put it in your partner's food, um, you know he'll hurry up and marry you. Um, so the look, the congregants acknowledge that, like the oil in itself is just plain olive oil, right? But what happens is that the the oil undergoes this change, and that can happen in various ways. Um, it's usually through sort of consecration, and if it comes from particularly, um, I write about kind of like these spiritual epicenters. So, for instance, you know, Israel or um, yeah. the temple in Sao Paulo, those are really powerful centers where the presence of God is very close. So you have this sort of spiritual capacity that's almost kind of imbued in this oil. And it's through um, this anointing oil that there is really that kind of, sort of that point of contact between congregants and God. Um, and it, it makes their faith tangible. Right. Um, so, for instance, um, it's really interesting how the holy oil is used. Um, they have these and obviously after the pandemic um they've kind of i think they've had to kind of scale back their their services but they they used to have um the service that you would go to if you yourself um had an addiction or if you were um or if a loved one of yours had an addiction and you would go and you would pray for them but often what you would also do is you would anoint a picture of them if if you were praying on behalf of a loved one so it could be on your phone or it could be a physical like photo of them. Um, you would anoint basically the site where they consume the substance with the anointing oil. Um, and in that way, you are, you are drawing God's attention to this plight um, so that he can then get involved and, um, and sort out the addiction. So it's, it's used for a number of things and it's, it's really powerful, and when there's these big events, um, you only kind of you'd be, you'd be queuing up to get a vial of oil because you mm -hmm. might be lucky and get two, but chances are you're only getting one, so you better use it wisely, kind of thing. That's fascinating, and and really speaks to to the power of that meaning as well. Yeah. And I just wanted to pick up. You had mentioned um, Halima's story. Mm -hmm. You know, it's the obviously one of your participants who the article is sort of surrounded. Um, could you briefly explain sort of her story and, and how it relates to the anointing oil? Yeah. Um, so Halima is one of the most incredible women I've ever met. Um, we used to uh, hang out on the train. Um, so I would, we would kind of, I would always sit in the same sort of place and then we would, uh, she'd get on the train and we'd like hang out on our way up to church and then take an amble up and, she um she was from Sudan and um she walked pregnant from Sudan to Egypt with her four young children to seek asylum. Um there was a lot wow. of um unrest. Her um husband and her father were um were quite involved politically. Um so she feared for for her children um and herself and she walked um, and then stayed in a refugee camp in Egypt for a couple of years before she was then um, given um, refugee status and then um, 
sorry, like asylum. She sought asylum then in Australia. Yeah. Um, and she, I remember her saying to me, she didn't realize she was black until she got to Australia. And then that's all she was. And wow. when she arrived, she had a really awful time. She was treated incredibly badly. Um, she had real difficulties navigating the system. Um, although Halima spoke, I mean, she was a polyglot. She, she spoke a, a good number of languages. You know, she was still getting, um, getting her English kind of to a point where she would be able to kind of apply for a job. So she had a really difficult time. In the church, like I mentioned, you know, it really teaches you how to use your faith. So one day um, we kind of met um, on the train and she was just looking pretty down and just wasn't herself. And she told me that she had gotten news that her mother, who was still in Sudan, um, was was gravely ill with breast cancer and they kind of caught it too late. And, you know, um, as Halima would say, you know, they only really had menace, medicines of war. Um, yeah. So she was really concerned about her mother and she didn't think that she would be able to visit her mother because not only is it, you know, astronomically expensive for her to go over and bear in mind, um, Halima um, was not earning a, a lot of money. It was supporting family members and, and that kind of thing. Um, but also her now Australian citizenship would also make it quite complicated for her to travel um, when she did get to the other side. Um, so Halima, the way she always does, uh, she made a plan. And, um, <laughs> you know, like Maxine, a boon make a plan. Make a plan. So uh, Halima was like, look, you know, I'm stuck here. My, my ability to see my mother um, is not... You know, my immobility here is is not going to impede on my ability to help my mother, essentially. So um, she decided to do what she was taught in the church and use her faith. So she fasted. Um, she sacrificed what money, you know, she could. Um, she would, she upped her evangelism as well. So she was doing kind of extra shifts on the evangelism front. Um and there was this event that was coming up and the event was a distribution of anointing oil that had come from Israel. And essentially when she got that oil um, that was imbued was kind of like, not only was it imbued with these sort of like spiritual power from Israel, but it had been consecrated in Israel by the UCKG pastors there, had been shipped over. Of course, there's the big event and it received sort of like the consecration um, both by the pastors here in Australia, but also by that kind of communal praying into the holy oil. Um, but it didn't stop there. So she took her vial of oil and she got other people to pray over the oil and she, for her mother in particular, and got the pastors to pray over the oil. Um, and then the question was, well, how is she going to get the oil? There. So you'll have to read the paper, which is a plug for paper. Um, but she was able to basically get this holy oil that had traveled from Israel via these sort of transnational um, UCKG networks um, to her mother. Um, and 
perhaps the outcome that she wanted, which was to cure her mother, um, might not have been eventuated. But something else, according to Halima, more miraculous happened. Again, a plug for the paper, you'd have to read it. Um, but for her, it was really important that she used this anointing oil to overcome her own immobility and to connect with her mother on her deathbed. And, and that's how and that's how she did it. Wow. I mean, the, you know, not that the paper needs any more plugging, but it really is. <laughs> I did a good, amazing good job. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it really is such an amazing story. And, um, you know, just to pick up on a couple of things that you mm-hmm. were talking about, you know, one of this really interesting takes, I think, that you had on this journey of the oil, you know, was that idea about material religion and, you know, kind of that relationship between. Mm-hmm or how these participants or, or how the congregation used material religion to sort of collapse this binary between mobility and stasis. Yeah. How, how do you sort of conceptualize that? So I think this kind of, you know, mobility and immobility is a bit of a, a kind of false binary when we're thinking about migration, right? So it's a really complicated relationship, you know, who goes, who stays, um, you know, there's this complex interaction between like the individual and these sort of big and powerful global regimes of mobility um, where, you know, the desirable versus the undesirable migrant is sort of weeded out. And, you know, not everyone has equal access to mobility and it's not even just sort of physical mobility. It's sort of that existential mobility as well. So um, a lot of what, I was hearing from congregants um, during my field work is that there are these kind of, and the UCKG would interpret this as kind of like these spiritual blockages, right? That it's inhibiting you from, from moving forward in your life. But Ghassan Hajj talks about the sense of stuckedness. Um, yeah. And that's really what, what like congregants were feeling, right? There are these obstacles in their path um, that's, that's essentially stopping them from living this kind of imagined Australian dream, right? Where, you know, you can own a home and have a good job and, and be safe in your bed at night um, and where your family is is happy and, and safe and well. And I think what I was trying to understand is what was it about the universal church and its spiritual networks and its obvious um, investment in materiality that that was helping people kind of navigate these blockages, right? Um, And really they were using, and they use the materiality of religious practice. Um, A lot of the time to sort of generate spiritual capital for instance, so um, spiritual capital, I largely define as a sort of intangible supernatural asset, right? And um, you get it by your connectiveness with God. And it's by generating this capital that you then have the capacity to use spiritual means to overcome secular obstacles. Um, Because when... When you've done all you can in the secular world, you know, something supernatural has to step yeah. in, basically. That, yeah, that spiritual capital aspect of it is, is so important because, as you mentioned, 
you know, this vial went from Israel mm. to Australia to South Sudan and creates all of this capital as as it goes along it and, and changes all these hands. Mm. So unfortunately, though, um, we have sort of come to a little bit of the end of my time. And, you know, oh, there's, no. there's so, I know, I know there's, <laughs> there's so much that I, I want to just dwell deeper into it and, and just totally geek out on, um, you know, but I wonder if you sort of had a final or, or before the final yeah. words of, you know, maybe just thinking about this purpose of religious objects and, and what, what it brings to the lives of these congregants. So I think, I think what's important is that these objects, as I mentioned kind of earlier, really make their faith tangible, right? And my research wanted to look at what it was about the global networks um, that were so important to local congregants um, and try to understand that relationship between faith and materiality of spiritual practice and and how that is used in really complex and incredible ways um, to facilitate migrant settlement in Australians' multicultural context that is not always um, friendly, um, particularly to, to people of colour. Um, and I think that these objects, um, in various ways through accruing um, spiritual capital, for instance, by, by being tangible um really do help with the negotiation of those obstacles yeah yeah absolutely absolutely it's a conduit Um, it's a conduit of faith right you're collecting mm -hmm. you're connecting these kind of local congregants to to god and in the power of god through this thing that that's tangible exactly as you say spiritual thing which has capacity, right? So it's not just kind of like this inanimate sort of object. It has the spiritual ca- capacity to change. And of course, like it, it's that spiritual capacity is there because of all of the work that the congregant has done in order to, um, to be right with God. So it's really the, con- the conduit. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. So finally, I know you've recently published a book. Congratulations, oh, by the way. Thank you. <laughs> that, um, was the, so, that was an edited collection with uh, Christina Rocha and Mark Hutchinson. Um, yeah. And so what's that about right now and, and what's the focus of your research currently? Okay, so um, the book that was just recently um, published um, like I mentioned, that was published. It's a it's a cross disciplinary book, and really, what we were doing is we were looking at the incredible diversity of um, Pentecostalisms and charismatic Christianities in an Australian context. Um, so, uh, Christina Rocha, who's over in um, Western Sydney University with myself, she was my PhD supervisor, uh, as was Mark Hutchinson, um, who is a historian and is over in Alpha Crucis. Um, basically, the book was a, a culmination of um, people from all different disciplines coming together and just geeking out over Pentecostalism in Australia. <laughs> um, so it was loads of fun. I'm an anthropologist, so um, I always find it so incredibly um, intellectually stimulating speaking to people um, who are in a different discipline to myself, but 
you know, finds the same sort of stuff cool. Um, yeah. So, yeah, so that's Kamaush. Is that another plug? You should buy yeah, it. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> and it will be linked in the description. <laughs> um, shameless. Um, <laughs> and then, um, so at the moment, I'm working with uh, Christina Rocha again um, and Richard Vokes, who is over at the University of Western Australia. Um, and they won... Um, an Australian Research Council grant, um, a Discoveries Project grant, um, to look at um, African Christians in Australia. So our research has um, gone through some challenges, given that both Chris, well, all three of us are, are anthropologists. So we weren't necessarily able to do kind of like the ethnographic stuff that we wanted to do um because because of um all the restrictions in lockdown but we've yeah. been able to to do some interviews and stuff so we're kind of really focused on um african christians um african australians um and their understanding of of faith and again that sort of like negotiation of the migrant experience and faith it's really oh. common throughout my work <laughs> yeah no i mean it's absolutely fascinating and Obviously, I will link, um, you know, your bio and, and everything that you're working on. And I just wanted to thank you so much, Kathleen. It's been such a pleasure interviewing you. I kept interrupting you because I'm so, I'm no, just giddy and excited. I, and, had a, I had a great time. And can I just say, it's like 8.20 in the morning here in Sydney now, and I am buzzing for the day. <laughs> Well, it's almost 11 p.m. and I have to go to bed. Oh, no, um, you're probably, so. thank you so much for staying up so late, yeah. Maxine. I really appreciate no, it's it. It's been amazing. It All right. Been fantastic. Thank you, and thank you to, um, to you guys for inviting me on. I've had a great time. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Bye. Bye. I really enjoyed the interview. Thank you to both Dr. Openshaw and Dr. Connolly Panagopoulos. One of the really fun things about listening to an interview like this as an Americanist who has worked with neo-Pentecostals, the same area, the same kind of groups, but not with this particular group, the, the folks that I study were not uh, Universal Ch Kingdom of God, is that uh, I hear the same kind of moves being repeated. So Kathleen talks about in the interview how folks using the oil and consecrating the oil and having the oil um, anointed uh, in different places was a way for them to have spiritual solutions to their secular problems. And, and this is really at the heart of some of the things that I worked on in my own research. The, the way that, that Kathleen positions the church as a, as a church of others in Australia, a community of uh, the most marginalized as a home for people that feel like they don't have a home is so different than some of the ways that the UKG church has positioned themselves elsewhere. So for instance, the, um, the book, uh, a church of strangers by, uh, uh, Van Wyck about, uh, South Africa positions who comes to that church and how they relate to one another in a totally different way. And it, it's such a delight to be able to have an international conversation about this international Pentecostal group and to see 
things that are are so familiar, the structural moves of what spiritual capitalism and, and spiritual capital can do for a community, but also to see that that every one of these things adapts to its local circumstance and finds a way to appeal to the community where it's embedded is so um, enlightening uh, as, as a researcher who focuses on a similar area. I was really thrilled uh, to hear it today. So thank you to them both. Brianne, we've got lots of things to, to let listeners know about. What are some of the things that, that folks that have joined us for the after thing should be really thinking about for, um, for how they can support us and how we can support them? Well, speaking of how we can support you, what you've just been saying about the specific of specifics of context that were relevant to that episode, it just reminded me of an episode we just had air, um, where I interviewed Christopher Cotter about um, atheism in Edinburgh, and he also spoke about spoke about the specifics of uh, of context and geographical spaces to the study of religious studies. Now, if you want to, if you are interested in that episode, you can go back and find it on our website, religiousstudiesproject.com, but also on our socials, both Facebook and Twitter. On Facebook, we are the Religious Studies Project, and and on Twitter, we are at Project RS. Even if you don't want to go back and find that episode, make sure you do follow us on our socials, both on Facebook and Twitter. And remember that creating a podcast and keeping all of our content up online is not free. And we need to make sure that we're playing our part in the fight against unpaid academic work. So if you are able to support us, head to our website, thereligiousstudiesproject.com. Head to the Support Us tab up the top of your screen, and there you will find several ways that you can support us. You can become a regular contributor via our Patreon format, or you can give us a one-off donation. Of course, we appreciate anything that you can do to help us keep the Religious Studies Project on the air. Now, continuing our monthly theme of ritual, up next, we have an interview that I did. It was a wonderful interview that I'd been dying to do with uh, Jay Laurent Matori, and we spoke about his work, The Fetish Revisited, Objects, Hierarchy, and BDSM. We spoke about his work in the book, The Fetish Revisited, but also his upcoming work on BDSM. It's a wonderful episode, and I look forward to that one next week. But until then, all that's left to say is... Thanks, Thanks for, for listening. listening. The RSP is sponsored by the British Association for the Study of Religions, the North American Association for the Study of Religion, and the International Association for the History of Religions. The Religious Studies Project is produced by the Religious Studies Project Association, SCIO, a Scottish charitable incorporated organisation, charity number SC047750. Brought to you by founders and editors-in-chief Chris Cotter and David Robertson and managing editor Thomas J. Coleman III. Our features are edited by Marek Sullivan and Rebecca Barrett-Fox and our opportunities digest by Ella Bock. Podcast transcription by Helen Bradstock with audio editing by Gregory Schneider and Samuel Ward. Social media managed by Ray Radford, sales and marketing by Sammy Bishop and video editing by Jonathan Tuckett. Don't forget you can support the project by using our amazon.com.co.uk and .ca links or donating at patreon.com slash projectrs and you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Google+, YouTube, iTunes and other portals.